0: This is Soundmaking, a podcast made by Hogan Stenner and myself, Matthew Shlomovitz. Each episode of Soundmaking features a composer or performer discussing the how and why of music they've created. In this episode of Soundmaking, I spoke with George Lewis about his 2012 composition, Merce and Baby. The recording of this piece, which you'll hear at the end, comes from Ensemble Downiente's 2021 album, Confined Speak, which was released on New Focus Records. This album features five more pieces by other composers and we warmly recommend it to you. In our chat, George and I spoke about the 1946 Merce Cunningham production which featured drummer Baby Dodds, the sidelining of jazz and improvised music by the experimental tradition and the dramaturgy of this work.
1: I'm George Lewis, uh, composer, musicologist, uh, electroacoustic music person, and trombonist. I live in New York and teach at Columbia University, where I am area chair in composition. I'm also on the faculty in historical musicology. Well, we've just heard a bit of my piece, Mersin Baby, which I wrote in 2012 for the John Cage Festival, Centennial Festival that Roger Reynolds organized. The premiere is was in Washington, D.C., But this is a great performance by the group Ensemble Daliente. Uh It's flute, uh, violin, cello, and drum set. And it was just recorded, of, uh, just a few months ago and just released on their album called Confined Speak" with Michael Lewanski conducting well there is a prehistory of Merce and Baby, and I can trace it to a performance I did in two thousand and eight uh, of the Cunningham events. Uh, I was brought into the Merce Cunningham uh, musical orbit by john king and 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 we I did concerts with takisa Kosugi and David Behrman. Uh, Marina Rosenfeld, and John, among others. We were doing a lot of these Cunningham events, and I did one at Dia Beacon in uh, upstate New York. As a, I participated as an electronic performer, and, you know, there was a party after that, and um, I just, I saw Merce sitting all by himself, and I thought, well, boy, I might never have a chance to talk to, uh, talk to him again, you know, and that, and that turned out to be true, so I was uh, and I just went over. And I wanted to find out why he included me on all these events. And I wanted to thank him for that. And I did. And then at some point, he he said the funniest thing. He said, you know, George, I didn't feel the same way about improvisation that John did. So, well, wow, Now where did that come from? <laughs> you know, and then I thought, well... God, could he have read that article from 1996? I wrote this article that a lot of people read. It's called Improvised Music After 1950, Afrological and Urological Perspectives. And even a lot of my friends who knew Cage, I didn't really know Cage, I met him once, but said that I I was attacking him, which I really wasn't attacking John Cage. What I was attacking was the regime of white supremacy that unfairly elevated him to a position of authority over black musical production, particularly jazz. And so a lot of those people were very uncritical about uh, African-American or Afrological uh, music. And so, and you know, Cage didn't help because he said all these mean things about jazz and improvised music. But, you know, I look at that nowadays in hindsight as kind of like a group of young artists trying to make their way in the 50s when the dominant form of real-time indeterminate music was jazz. And so how do you make a way for yourself? So a lot of what, maybe you do it through denouncing the previous generation. (laughs) So I look at it like that. You know, it didn't upset me that much, but then... Maybe that article is still being read and people still talk about it. But the people who think of it as a critique of Cage maybe should read it more carefully. But um, then Merce started to say, well, you know, I did a concert with Baby Dodds. Now, that threw me for a total loop. I didn't know anything about that. Um, It turned out that he had done this, I read later, in 1946 at uh, Hunter College in New York. And no one had ever seemed to be writing about this. Like the historians, the stories of experimental music and dance didn't find this important enough to write about it all. And uh, But it seemed fascinating to have these two, you know, now considered canonical in their fields, people who got together. The piece was called Fast Blues, and there were three dancers, I, I'm assuming Merce and two others, and uh, Baby Dodds um, performing... Uh, on drums and that was it, now Baby Dots being the person who, maybe for people who should know, he, he played on all the Louis Armstrong you know, Hot Fives and Hot Sevens and he developed a solo drum uh, practice, solo drumming practice, he developed new innovations for certain sort of ways of handling the drum kit, so he's a very important figure, so maybe the experimental music people didn't know that, the, the ones that Uh, ignored maybe what David Vaughn wrote, the Cunningham historian who wrote about this. He was the only person to write about it. So I was, you know, the thing is about playing with Merce Cunningham, if you don't, really know what you can imagine is that they really do want the dance and the music to be separate they don't want you to really try to do anything based on what the dancers are doing they like the dance the music to be operate on separate tracks more or less and the viewers and listeners make the connection for themselves it's a form of freedom i heard someone say a new kind of a different kind of freedom non-dialogic non-intentional so i knew this of course because i've been experiencing it and i came up in that regime and so I said, "Well, what happened, Merce? I mean, what did he, um, what did he do? What, what did, how did it work?" He said, "Well, we couldn't keep Baby from accompanying us." And I said, "Well, that's interesting." And so I thought, that was an interesting remark. So uh, when I started doing my research on this piece, uh, I found out that Baby Dodds had written about it, the performance in his own memoirs, the Baby Dodds story, and. Uh, he talked about it as being like, Well, he said that Merce came to him and said, Well, you know, um, I want to play with you. He says, Well, I don't know what you want. What do you want? He says, Well, and then he, Merce says, Play something. He plays something, and Merce says, That's what I want. <laughs> so then they had. They had a rehearsal, I think, maybe just one or something, and then in the Baby Dodds memoir, he was—he said, "Well, I just didn't, you know, I'd never seen anything quite like that, but I think I handled it pretty well. I came in at the right spots. I tried to anticipate what the dancers were doing. In other words, exactly the stuff they didn't want to hear. They didn't want, but." But the thing is, that's two different ideas about the nature of representation. Two different generations, two different cultural backgrounds and standpoints, uh, racial, ethnic, all kinds of things connected with this. And so that seems to be a fertile ground for some kind of historical treatment. And indeed, I might try to do it myself one of these days to work out maybe, first of all, possibly why it was that I saw so little, in nothing written about this. And secondly, what happens when you get two different uh, musical artists who come together with very different ideas on the nature of representation? Person, baby is in kind of a tradition as i like to think of it of american music in which depiction plays a central role you see it a lot also in the second in early second viennese school stuff you know but you see it because it was hard to create form there's no 12 tone system they didn't have a replacement for what happened before and so you see people trying to figure, well, maybe we'll get the form from an external source, like a text or something. Or maybe we'll try to imitate nature. I mean, that's what happens in, you know, Farben, right? He's imitating, you know, Zoma Morgan, Alphandam Zay. You, you hear sounds like little birds and little fish going in and out. So, and you also hear this, at you know, around the same time in Charles Ives or or later, a little bit later, Henry Cowell, or Duke Ellington, or lots of other people. So it's in that tradition, that, or that tradition of practice. Um, so what's being depicted is the non-dialogic relationship between dance and music. I tried to write the music so that the drum set played by Baby Dodds, and actually using actual rhythms that Baby, Dodd, Baby Dodds performed and transcribed and also the three dancers, which I made, made, made that, the flute, the, um, the cello, and the violin, were not made to sort of fit like gloves with each other. They were supposed to sound as if they maybe were in separate worlds and you were supposed to put that together yourself. So, and there's a little bit b- more to that because I was trying to work with the iconography and history of Cage. Now, we think of Cage some people think of Cage as a, you know, a non-depictive performer or a non-depictive composer. But in fact, Bacchanal, which was the first um, um, prepared piano work, was totally depictive. You know, Sevilla Fort, the African-American dancer, wanted him to write a piece that sounded like African drums. So he kind of did that, but it didn't sound like African drums. It sounded like, like Balinese Gamelon. But... So what? The point is, <laughs> <laughs> it's a great piece, and it satisfied her at Sevilla Ford, And it was all about depiction. So in this case, what I decided to depict was a cheap imitation, which was John Cage's knockoff on uh, Eric Satie's Sokrat. As people know, he wrote this knockoff because the, um, the Satie estate refused to allow him to use the piece. And in 1946, he had played his own two-piano transcription of Sokrat with Maro Ajemian. So in the original concert with Baby Dodds, the forerunner of Cheap Imitation was there. And so, and looking at it sort of slightly technically, you know, um, uh, I, I've been listening a lot to Paul Tukovsky's performance of Cheap Imitation maybe 20, 30 years ago as a violin solo. And Cage called his, he called it a chromatic modal piece as I recall. So I started with that, I took a Harry Part 7 tone scale, and I rounded off the frequencies to equal temperament, which is already turning some people off, and then I crossfaded that ET material into the actual microtonal frequencies I wanted to use, so to make the contrapuntal texture that you hear at one part of the piece that you people heard. So my cheap cage, I started calling it modal microtonal, eh, so what? But so that's a part of it. There's a, there's a little more. I use the computer to help transcribe the, you know, the, trans, the uh, Dodds material or when the, you know, the computer, even something like Melodyne, it doesn't work very well with polyphonic material, I don't think so. It didn't work very well with the Dodds solo. So I memorized the Dodds solo and just started singing it into the computer and then I use that material as some of the material for the, the the um the drumming on the piece. And the beginning is kind of like I think of it as La Creation du Monde, you know, not like not like Mio, but like, you know, just like the real creation, the Big Bang, so to speak. And then and it, it's what was interesting to me about it was that it represented a certain kind of as as if the um these people who are doing this dance in this atmosphere Which wasn't terribly informed by black musical forms, uh, in the same way as uh, you know, like the experimental music tradition has always painted itself as being a a bit estranged from blackness. So, um, and suddenly, blackness comes in (laughs) unannounced in the form of uh, of Baby Dodds' solo, and so there's that sense of iconography around race and history and culture that informs the the dramaturgy of the piece.